You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. So Harley, do you want to come up and we'll just pray for you and give you the mic? Father, we lift up Harley to you, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Father, for the message that you put on his heart, Father, for us, Lord. I just pray we'll be open to receive it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that would you come and impact us, Lord, through the words that Harley has, Lord, what he's heard from you, Father. We pray for a confidence and a boldness, Lord, just to just to be able to speak in your name, Father, Lord. And we just pray blessing over him, Father, Lord. We thank you for the great bloke he is as well, Lord. And would you encourage him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Mike, for handing me the mic and praying for me and doing a great job. Um, morning, everybody. Um, I'm fresh uh, and back from Beach Mission. Tisha and I were up there over at Lake's entrance over the um, New Year's kind of Christmas period. We were directing a Beach Mission. That was really great and fantastic to kind of see God um, moving in the community of Lake's entrance um, and also in the lives of us and our team. Um, and, and as directors, our kind of first mission is uh, our team, We've got had a team of about 20 volunteers up there and we were looking after those guys and it was great to see God working in them um, and how um, yeah, people were able to kind of shift their focus that um, a lot of people came in tired and run down. But as they shifted their focus and they realised that actually we're here for God's mission, let's focus on that, they were able to really come alive in, in that space. Um, and through that, there was many great conversations. So um, we'd love to chat with you guys afterwards if you have questions about how that all went. Um, but yeah, I just thought I'd kind of start with that. Um, so today I'm going to be preaching through um, the, the next section in John. We've just finished off chapter 2. Um, and I don't know... Uh, and so I'm going to read through um, from verse 21 to from 1 to 21, sorry, of chapter 3 uh, of John. Um, and knowing Ian, he'll probably come through and, and you know, take another six weeks to get through the same passage. Um, but uh, I, I thought we'd, uh, we'd jump in and, and have, a, have a read of that. So uh, if you're going to open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, um, we can read. Uh, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as the teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, Nicodemus asked. I'm asking the same question. Um, Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about things that will happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? 
No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but the world, that the world might be saved through him. For anyone who believes is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it, so his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So this is an interesting passage. It has um, some strange things in there. We've got multiple births, um, birthception, anyone? Um, Covert meetings by night. We talk about kingdoms, stories about the wind, serpents, um, good and evil, light and darkness. Uh, eternal life. We've got, you know, probably one of the most well-known Bible verses in this passage as well. Um, and so I'm hoping we can just pull this together this morning and, and see what Jesus is driving at. Um, but before we get into that, I want to look at a bit about Nicodemus and understand his story a bit. So um, who is he and, and why is he here? So we can see from the passage in verse 1 that he's a Pharisee. Um, and so this is... Uh, First century uh, Jew, Jewish city in Jerusalem. Um, this man is effectively a politician and a priest rolled into one. He has um, the political power because that is what this Jewish society is is structured around. It's all around the temple, um, and he has uh, the priestly roles in there as well. So he's kind of got a lot of social standing and power. Um, and it says that he's a ruler of the Jews, so potentially he had like a, a, a group of people under him as well. Um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, um, which is a strange thing because uh, it's usually visiting hours usually happen during the day, but he, he ha- it has happened. Um, and so I just want to flick back to um, chapter 2, um, starting at verse 13, to kind of have a look at what's just happened. Um, so it's the Jewish Passover, um, and uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's travelled down from um, Galilee up up the north, uh, and has travelled down down to Jerusalem for this Jewish festival, this feast that everybody partakes in if you're uh, Jewish. Um, and in verse 14, he goes into the temple complex, and he finds people selling ox and sheep and doves and people doing money exchanges. And it says that he makes a whip of cords and he drove everybody out of the temple complex um, and he overturned all the money changers' uh, tables. And this is something we've talked about last year when we were going through this passage, um, and you unpacked that really nice. But he's he's made this big stand of authority, Jesus. He's made this grand entrance. um, And the uh, Jewish leaders 
come into and the Pharisees come and say to him, you know, what? Why are you doing this? What authority do you have to be doing these things, Jesus? And he answers, destroy this sanctuary and I'll build it up again in three days. Um, and the Jews are obviously incredulous because it took 46 years to build this thing. And he's like, yeah, all right, you're going to build it in three days? Good luck to you. Um, but he's obviously speaking about the sanctuary of his body. And it's this transition away from the temple as a sole singular place where God dwells to actually a mobile temple with somebody who can roam around. Um, and so um, he's, he's made this grand entrance and he would have been in the buzz of the town. Everybody would have been talking about this guy who just came through and you know, overturned all these tables. Um, and then it, it continues in verse uh, 23 and 24 that um, Jesus went around in Jerusalem and performed signs. And it doesn't go into detail about what those signs are, but we see through the other Gospels that you know, his signs were healing people, miraculous signs, teaching as well. Um, and so we can see that he's going to be moving through Jerusalem doing that. Um, and it says that many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But to verse 24, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Um, Jesus saw in their hearts that they had this different vision of what it would be for him to be the Messiah, for him to be the king. Um, and he just doesn't subscribe to that. And so he's not going to go their way. And so he actually withdraws um, out of Jerusalem um, shortly afterwards. But Nicodemus comes into the scene and there's this connection, this flow through. And it's easy to kind of forget about what happened before when we've got chapters and chunks like this. But this, this story that John is showing is that Nicodemus... Um, has some connection to the reaction of the Pharisees and to the crowds. He seems to have this um, interest in Jesus, um, but he's also from this Pharisaical group that is a bit sceptical of who he is. Um, And so as to why he's coming at night, we don't really know. It doesn't explain it, but it's probably uh, and potentially because he was a bit embarrassed to be seen around Jesus. Um, because of what Jesus had done earlier and because of the um, ruffling of the feathers that Jesus made when he came in, especially within the Pharisees. Um, But he is coming because he's interested and he wants to know more and he's digging in. He's trying to find out a little bit more about Jesus and who he is. Um, And so continuing on in in, um, verse 2 of chapter 3, it says, um, Nicodemus says to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Um, now, I find it interesting that he says we. Um, I kind of feel that he's uh, been chatting with his um, Pharisee buddies and they've kind of been debating the different views of, you know, all the crowds are saying, oh, he's the Messiah and this sort of stuff, but they're taking a more reserved approach of saying he's a teacher of God. Um, they're not not willing to jump in with two feet and say he's the Messiah. They have a lot of people coming through saying, oh, I'm the Messiah. So they don't jump on those sort of bandwagons very easily. Um, And they subscribe strongly to the law. Um, But but Nicodemus comes in and says, we we see that you're a teacher of God. Um, And... um, 
it's it's interesting that um, uh, in the chapter one we can see that people actually call Jesus the Son of God. Um, in John chapter one thirty four it says um, John the Baptist says um, I have borne witness that this is the Son of God, and he says that referring to Jesus. Um, and Andrew, one of the first disciples, um, in verse forty one of chapter one says um, to his brother Simon Peter. Um, we have found the Messiah, um, which is the Christ. They do acknowledge, however, that Jesus, he must be of God because he's doing these miraculous signs. It's hard to say that um, he is against God at this point, but it's interesting because we know that later on they change their tune a little bit that He's actually working, you know, for the Prince of Demons and things like that. They they change their tune as as Jesus continues to harp on about the kingdom of God. Um, and so, in verse three, Jesus responds and he says, "I assure you, unless anyone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Um, now, this seems a little strange to me, and uh, I don't know if you kind of stop to think about it, but doesn't really kind of connect with what Nicodemus was saying, just kind of comes out very left of field. Um, But Jesus wishes to cut to the heart of the matter. He can see that um, Nicodemus is here because he's curious and he wants to know more, but he also sees that Nicodemus just views Jesus as another teacher, another person like himself. Um, But... Jesus knows that a new teaching isn't enough for Israel at this point. Teaching them a new um, way to view the law is not going to actually bring them closer to God. Um, Jesus thinks that a whole new heart, a whole new life is required um, to even be able to see God's kingdom. To be able to um, visualize it, we have to actually have a whole new heart. Um, but uh, Nicodemus doesn't seem to be picking up what Jesus is putting down um, because he says, you know, how can anyone be bored when they're old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Um, and Nicodemus is clearly looking for a practical answer. He's like, how can I, you know, do this? He's, he's trying to understand and get into Jesus' mind uh, of what he's saying. Um, and he's used to looking for practical solutions. He's used to practicing the law, practicing the rituals to get close to God. And so he's looking, what does it mean for me to be born again? Um, and then Jesus kind of goes on and I just feel that he just really always comes from a very left of centre uh, or left of field, out of view kind of way of responding to people. Um, he starts talking about water and the spirit and flesh and wind. Um, so in verse 5 and 6 we see um, Jesus says, I assure you, unless someone is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, there's a number of different ideas when you talk to people about what Jesus means when he's talking about being born of both water and spirit. Um, uh, A kind of easy one for a lot of people to kind of go to is that it's talking about being baptised, that um, 
uh, that has to be your, your first step, especially as around this passage, there's a lot of talk of baptism. Jesus is baptized earlier. There's more baptizing in the chapter after this. Um, however, when we look throughout the Bible, it's not really supported um, throughout it as an essential part of faith, um, but rather an expression of faith that's already been received. Um, Jesus even says when he's nailed up on the cross later that, to the man next to him that today you'll be with me in paradise. Yet we don't hear the, that man coming off the cross and being baptized or anything like that. It's just through his confession of Jesus as Lord that stands out. Um, other people suggest that maybe water could mean uh, the written word of God, um, as there are other passages in the Bible that link the word of God and the water, uh, images of water. Um, and we do know that the word of God is essential for understanding the gospel um, and uh, coming to a salvation. We can't do it without those words. Um, Another idea is that the water in verse 5 might actually be linked to the flesh in verse 6 um, because we can see when we talk about the spirit as the spirit second in verse 5 and then the spirit second in verse 6. So we go water spirit and then flesh spirit. Um, but how are water and flesh the same thing? That seems a bit of a stretch. Um, but if you think about it, when a human is born the mother's water breaks just before that birth. Jesus sees that everyone is born of the flesh, um, but the flesh is not capable of being in the presence of God. And so therefore we must have a rebirth, a second birth. Um, Now, this is well known to Nicodemus, that he cannot enter God's presence you have to go through a large amount of ritual to enter the temple and to make yourself presentable so you can come close to God. To enter God's kingdom and to dwell there, Jesus says, we must be born again and that birth must come through the Spirit. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 7, don't be amazed. Nicodemus should know this already. He can't if he wants to be in the presence of God as a full-time thing, he's not going to be able to do it in and of himself. And it's also interesting to note that Jesus is uniquely positioned right now to be the first person to be born of both the flesh and the spirit. In uh, continuing on um, in verse 8, And nine, he says, the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Um, This stumped me for a long time. I was trying to kind of wrestle with what this meant. Um, And I find it interesting that Jesus um, so often and frequently uses nature to illustrate spiritual truth. Um, The word wind and spirit are actually the same in Hebrew and Greek. Um, And so the Jewish understanding of the spirit is very much tied to a vision of what the wind is like. We see, obviously, in Genesis that God breathed life into us, and that was the spirit that gave us life as well. They're kind of one and the same. And so Jesus is saying that this new spiritual birth is like the wind. First of all, Um, it's not a power that man controls. 
it takes place according to God's will. Um, now, while we're beginning to kind of understand now a little bit about how wind and air currents move, when you see those for our, our um, you know, weather forecasts and things like that, where it's very hard to actually predict the small gentle breezes and gusts and the changes in wind that happen throughout the day. Those little uh, nuances that you'd only find if you were standing in that particular spot at a, a particular time. And so it is with the spirit. There's these subtle moves of the spirit that are just so hard for us to fully grasp and comprehend. And this is what Jesus is linking this spiritual birth to. It's this process that it's hard to fully comprehend and, and nail down, um, which is probably a bit disappointing for Nicodemus because he was just asking for a practical answer. How can, how can I be born again? And yet here's this thing that's kind of it's hard to grasp at. You can't grab the wind, can you? Secondly, um, this new birth is invisible. Um, he says that the wind goes wherever it pleases, but you, and you don't know where it's going or where it's coming from, but you hear its sound. You see, you can't see it, but you can see the results of it. You can't see the wind, but you can see it moving the trees. You can't see the spirit moving in somebody's life, like somebody growing a beard, but you can see the result of it as the fruit grows. This new birth is, it's unpredictable. And it's not possible just to state it's going to happen here or there, and it's going to take this long. It's more... Free. And, and Nicodemus seems pretty understandably confused by these things. And he asks in verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus replies, a bit sassily I might say, that are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? It's like, oh, come on, Nicodemus. Jesus expects him to understand the futility of being made right with God by our own effort. You know, the list of stories in the Old Testament is long and exhaustive of all the people who tried and failed again and again and again to reach God's standard. And we see all throughout these, the prophets this, this constant call and this expectation of one who will come and be the man that God created us to be to actually not fall to the temptation of the flesh. But... Of course, that is so difficult when flesh only gives birth to flesh. Verse 11, Jesus says, I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. Uh, now, Jesus is revealing a bit of a different side of him here. He's, he's opening himself up to Nicodemus as being more than just a teacher. Um, he's speaking in this uh, plural, this third person, we and our. And it's interesting because this actually contrasts against Nicodemus' statement at the start because he says, we know that you are the uh, teacher from God. But does he really? Whereas Jesus t talks of his um, connection with his father and his true knowledge of what he knows. And of course we know from chapter 1 that Jesus was with God in the beginning as the Word. He knows all these things and he knows the history of mankind at great detail. God so greatly loves his creation and yet he knows that we are so desperately broken. 
However, Nicodemus and the other Pharisees, they don't accept his te- uh, testimony that a radical change needs to take place. Um, and how can they? Because Jesus has already said that unless you're born of the Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. You won't be able to see it coming. In verse 12 and 13, Jesus continues and he says, If I have told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe when I tell you about the things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, Nicodemus is still struggling to understand this concept and process of entering into the kingdom through his complete rebirth. Um, But that is nothing um, compared to the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. You know, God um, wanted to save this world so much that he came and tied himself to our fate, to our death, and through it brings salvation. And that's just so radical and different. And we see in verse 13 that Jesus says, he highlights that he's qualified to speak of these heavenly things because he has actually come from heaven. And so he's actually speaking from his nature, from his heavenly nature. Um, If any of us was to travel up to heaven, unless we'd been born of the Spirit, we wouldn't be able to comprehend these things of heaven. It's something that comes through that Spirit working in us. Um, Also, as a side note, just for those familiar with the stories of Enoch and Elijah's ascensions to heaven um, from the Old Testament, those don't come from themselves, um, but instead they're actually taken up through God's power. They don't have the power to do that themselves. Jesus, however, has his own power in which he can ascend. Um, In verse 14 and 15, um, Jesus continues and he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Um, Now Jesus here is recalling a story from Israel's journey in the wilderness uh, before they got to the promised land. And this is actually highlighting some of the things that are veiled to people, things of heaven that are vowed to people um, when they can't see God's unwinding story of um, bringing life. Um, so I'm going to go jump into this passage in, in Exodus. Um, Israel was kind of partway through their 40-year journey, um, and they've just found out... Um, First of all, they've just uh, had Aaron, their, their high priest, has just died on the, the top of a mountain, um, and his uh, mantle has been passed on to his son, so there's a big kind of shift there. And then they've wanted to pass through this land of Edom, kind of make this shortcut across, um, and they've basically said, no, you're not coming through, um, because they weren't trusted to pass through their land peacefully. And so in Exodus 21, verses 4 to 9, uh, I'll read this passage out. Um, then they sent out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt and to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. 
the people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. So Moses, uh, sorry, a mountain of pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake and recovered. Um, so just kind of working through that, the, the food that they're complaining about is actually the manna. Um, that God provides, that's a miraculous gift from God that appears on the ground around their campsite every morning. Um, and they're kind of, you know, not happy with it. Um, which I can understand if they're doing it for 40 years, they may get a little bit annoyed with it. I, I struggle to do two meals in a row of the same food. But it's interesting that they just get so fed up with God and um, they complain that they're going to die in the wilderness and, the, and this sort of stuff. But that's such a consistent complaint throughout their journey. This isn't the first time they've said it, and it's not the last, that, you know, God, you've led us here to die. Take us back to Egypt. Um, but it's interesting that mankind views themselves in a position to actually complain to their saviour and creator. Um, and I think it's a reflection of our rebellion against God in the garden. Um, that to view our thoughts and our ways as higher than his, whereas he has this greater unfolding story of their redemption. And so God sends snakes through the camp, um, and many people are bitten and died. It's pretty, pretty intense, um, but it's a clear mirror to the bite of sin that has infected mankind, that infects each of us. We are still alive, but death will take us soon. Um, just as a snake bite victim is going to die if they don't get that poison removed. Um, and so as this poison flows through the veins of the people in, of Israel, they cry out to God for help. And it's interesting because they ask, Lord, take the snakes away from us. But he doesn't take the snakes away. He actually just provides a solution for those who have been bitten. Um, and it's God provides this, um, divinely provides this miraculous way of being healed. It's not a conventional way of being healed. I, I don't see it happening in many hospitals these days. Um, and in the same way, God provides a miraculous way of us being healed through Christ, of our spiritual death. Um, now, the idea of creating an image of a snake is kind of, Controversial in my mind, especially after you know that whole golden calf incident, which they, you know, were not doing so great that time, um, and and God's commanded not to make idols. But we often see throughout the Old Testament um, God tying His presence and His power to different objects and places. Moses' staff, for example, Mount Sinai is the place where the pillar of fire rested. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, which the Israelites took with them wherever they went. Um, and then Jerusalem and the temple as this grounding place where God's presence dwelt. Um, and so it's not the, the first time he's used an image and it's certainly not the last. 
And it's also very reflective that through a snake, death came to the Israelites. And through an image of the snake, healing came to those same Israelites. Jesus came in flesh like ours and provided healing for us for the sin of death that runs through our veins as an image of us. And then just as the snake was lifted up on a pole, Jesus was raised up on a cross. And that's his crowning moment. And so those who look upon the image of the snake were healed, and so too we are healed if we look upon Jesus on the cross and believe. And this leads very nicely into our next verse. It's not as disjointed as I first believed when I read this passage. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the most well-known and common verses quoted from the Bible. Um, And it makes sense because it states the gospel so clearly and simply. Um, In that first verse, verse 16, we have um, the world, all of us, all of us around the world. Um, However, we're a world infected with the poison of sin. And we will perish and die if we stay on our current trajectory. And then we see God's love for this dying world. And how much does he love us? How do we know that he loves us? Because he gave up his son for us to die the death that we should. And so from this, from his loving gift, we are rescued from certain death and given an eternal life that won't fade away. And how does it all happen? Through the simple act of belief. The act of belief That is our second birth, a birth of the Spirit which gives uh, us access to the kingdom of God. Verse 17 um, shows that condemnation for this world is not actually part of God's plan or his goal. It's not his purpose. Um, Nicodemus needs to shift his view. In fact, It's a very popular view in Israelite circles that when God would come, he would wipe out all of Israel's enemies and he would set up his own people, that he would condemn those around Israel. And yet we see that Israel is actually condemned as well. That's why we had the whole exile. In fact, many people today believe that this is the main focus of Christianity, to condemn those beyond the walls of our church. And yet, Christ's mission is to save this world. And we should get on board with that. Because we're called to uh, mirror Christ. And, and why has Jesus not come to condemn? It's because we're already condemned. 
as those Israelites were bitten in the wilderness, they were condemned to death because of the poison running through their veins. Until they were saved by God's grace by that brass snake. And we too stand condemned to death because we have the poison of sin running through our veins. Jesus dies in our place that we might believe he is our saviour and through this give us birth to new life through the spirit to an eternal life. Verse 19. This then is the judgment, the conclusion, the culmination. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For any, everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it, so his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. This is the culmination and the result of all that Jesus has talked about. Um, he again uses a metaphor of nature of light in the darkness, which is fitting considering they're meeting at night as well. Um, he's very good, I've noticed, that taking environmental cues to launch off into parables. Jesus is the light of men. In chapter 1 it says that Jesus is the light of men. Um, and through this, he's come into the world and brought with him that light. Until now, God's presence has been tied to an object like the ark or a place like Mount Sinai or the temple. And yet Jesus breaks all these existing categories by being a roaming temple, moving freely about people. And instead of being uh, other people around him being destroyed by the holiness, he's actually transferring his holiness to them and raising them up. And yet this light reveals the very broken state of mankind. And we hide away from that. Just like when you go into a dark room and you shine a light and all the creepy insects kind of run away and they scatter and they hide from the light, just like us. We hide from the light of Christ's, Christ's message. We see the light shining on our lives and we see that light as condemnation, but it's actually seeing our existing state, our where we are right now, and that light is there so that Jesus can remedy us. A surgeon needs to turn on the light so he can see how to pull out that cancer. However, the Pharisees see uh, that Jesus is showing and unveiling their evil deeds. Like the temple just before where he overturned all those tables and he drove out those things. And so they wish to destroy Jesus. They can't bear the light so they seek to extinguish it. But for those who see their broken state and their inability to come close to God, those who see the truth, they must be reborn by the Spirit. We come to love the light when we are reborn by the Spirit and we shine that light through us, through the Holy Spirit, when he dwells within us. Now we don't see how Nicodemus responds to all of this. Um, instead, we're kind of left to ponder Jesus' message. But we do see Nicodemus 
turn up later in John's Gospel. Um, and there seems to be a shift in, in his uh, view of Jesus. He doesn't just see him as a teacher anymore. He views him as a bit more. But what does this mean for all of us? Well, there's a few things. Um, for those who already call Jesus their saviour, um, maybe there's a reminder when you look at people who don't believe in Jesus, there's a few things to remember. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. And so as we seek to emulate Christ, we should take every opportunity to save, not to condemn. If we shine the light on another person's darkness and the crap in their lives, we need to remember that it's done so that healing might take place, not to pour salt on the wound. Another thing is that the journey of coming to Christ is very much like the wind. The Spirit moves in all sorts of ways and it's invisible to us. And our role is not to say what is the Spirit and what is not, but to point people to Jesus, to look upon the cross as he's raised up just like that snake on the pole. And for ourselves, we so often feel the weight of our sin the condemnation of it, we look at our lives and we look at the dark corners rather than the light. And yet we should be reminded that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light of Jesus is in our lives and however small, it casts a bright light in the darkest of places. God has rebirthed us into a whole new life through Christ And this has not happened through anything you've done, nor will it ever be affected by anything you do. That light in your life, that is through the simple act of faith. And what about for those who don't yet believe in Jesus? Well, the light of Jesus is shining upon them. And you you may feel uncomfortable because you feel condemned for the things that you've done. Yet that condemnation is a present reality. Whether you do good things or not, you're infected with a poison. And that poison leads to death. History shows us that mankind is not good, not getting better at being good, at getting closer to God. You know, we always come with new ideas, new ways, new initiatives of how we should be better humans. But you know, if somebody's not on board with us, then we like, pounce on them and say hey you should be with us and so we crush them and we don't love them and we fail and we fail because we're born of flesh we can only create more of what we are we can't create our perfect selves because we are imperfect but God loves you and he wants you free of condemnation from of sin he wants new life within you to remove that poison from your veins. And he's provided a way for you to do that, and it's through believing that Jesus has died in your place so that you might have eternal life. And so I want us to yeah, really reflect on that weight of the gospel, that Jesus has moved so so far into our lives uh, that 
you know, he wasn't content to stay in the temple, but he had to come as Jesus and move amongst us. Um, and that he saved us out of our place where we could do nothing to actually get ourselves right with God. Um, and so, um, in Ephesians 2, it talks about how we've been saved by God for good works and that we can walk in those um, because of the fact that we've been made new through the Spirit. Um, and so I'd like to just take a time for you guys to reflect and, and think through that. Um, and um, maybe if we could have one of the songs from earlier, John, um, play um, like uh, How Deep the Father's Love. Thanks, Harley. That was an awesome message. Um, That's all we've got for today, guys. Go out and have a great week. We can encourage you to hang around for a coffee, catch up, say hello. Um, Also, if you would like any prayer, feel free to come grab one of us and we'll get some people together and we'll pray for you as well. So other than that, God bless and have a great week. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.